Welcome, everyone. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Willie Grills here with Zell and Heidi, Adam Coons, and David Butes to talk about critical theory in this special After Dark episode. Gentlemen, how are you? How is the weather in your part of the country? Zellin, you go first. Well, it snowed today, which delights me to no end. <laughs> it warms my Nordic heart, but uh, it, it's actually really nice for us because we are very, very dry. I mean, most of the state is under a burn ban right now, so any and all moisture is more than welcome, and it's it's a good feeling. I would like to point out that Zelwyn does not care about Romans 13 and has been burning everything in sight uh, <laughs> since the ban was instituted. <laughs> I was I was actually about to say, like, broke mask mandate, uh, bespoke burn ban. Right. Yeah, exactly. Uh, our, you know, the dust baths must be nice when it's uh, so dry out there. You can really get that dust under your fur and get it all cleaned out. Yeah, definitely. It it feels real good. You just kind of roll around for a while. So, <laughs> David, how is the weather up your way? It's it's good. You know, I'm pleased to say we didn't have any snow. It's been a little bit chilly, but we got good weather coming ahead, and the green things are all popping out of the ground. It's it's pretty nice. Adam, yeah, I want to die, man. Um, <laughs> it snowed. It's April twentieth, and baseball was canceled for tomorrow so i mean why live honestly yeah we had we had snow here today so i was previously down south exploring various caverns trying to find the entrance to the hollow earth awesome. and, and it was it was like in the mid 70s it was great um oddly enough virtually zero masks and everybody smoking in public it was awesome and uh, i think i mean i felt like i stepped back in time to a yes. place called america as you do, yeah. And, right. and yeah. so, yeah, as I'm uh, having fever dreams of uh, Fuller Warren and I'm driving north toward the Illinois border, a feeling of dread came over me. And then I looked at the thermometer and saw that it was falling precipitously. And so I went from beautiful uh, southern high mid-70s to whatever I'm living in right now. And uh, it was it was a hard adjustment, you know, but I, I called Z and, you know, he, he he prayed over me and virtually laid hands on me. Uh, to help me get through this because he's got big mojo, you know, mucho mojo on that guy. He can make you feel better. But um, yeah, it was in all seriousness, this, uh, this temperature drop is, it's not, it's no bueno guys. Luckily I don't have the garden out yet though. So we're going to be okay. But yeah, we have a freeze warning and some kind of snow advisory going on. So did, did you at least find Atlantis though, when you were looking for the big fella? <laughs> Well, maybe Atlantis was the friends we made along the way. You know? <laughs> That's, that feels like a cope if you don't find the tropical or Heimat. Right. Um, you know, the, the real story is I was looking for the Fountain of Youth, but the real story is I just want to revive the Reconquista. So. Okay, based. <laughs> so we're going to do that. We, we need to do our colonialization episode soon, too, by the way. That's going to that. be a that's going to be a series, man. That's got to be. It's going to be. It's going to be <laughs> Mexico one, as it could have been. Right, one yeah. celebration of civilization after another, and the end Just of you know public child sacrifice, mass human sacrifice. Right, exactly. <laughs> Remember, folks. Anytime they tell you that the conquistadors lied in their diaries, just give it time. Archaeology will prove them correct. Uh, it was like with the uh, with the with the pyramid of human skulls. Well, clearly this was just an exaggeration. Now somebody's digging around in Central America somewhere, and guess what they find? But nobody ever apologizes to the conquistadors. 
But that's neither here nor there. We've offended enough people with that already, and we're really going to probably ruffle some feathers tonight. <laughs> so we're going to talk about critical theory. Uh, Adam, I'll throw this to you. Give us a brief working definition of critical theory and why we're talking about it. Critical theory has a specific historical genesis in first interwar Germany and then with academic emigration, largely Jewish, to the United States before the Second World War, notably with Theodore Adorno and Max Horkheimer, commonly known as the Frankfurt School. What it, what it is, just in a nutshell, is an application of systematic resentment, which is forged originally in purely economic terms, supposedly, in Orthodox Marxism. And then you apply that to other political dynamics, notably in the United States, race, but you can also apply it to gender in the case of feminism. And what it does is it provides a sort of universal solvent for Western civilization. So in any given realm of life, I can dissolve through criticism and constant accusation of bias, evil, and assorted blood libels, that everything about historic Western civilization should be torn down. Very good. Um, so in essence, it's about tearing down everything that we believe yeah. teach and stand for. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's a cultural genocide. It is. Uh, it is. And Adorno and Horkheimer specifically are concerned after the Second World War that you know, the Third Reich could rise again in the United States because nuclear families are structured along patriarchal authority. And so understanding that, like in their book, The Authoritarian Personality, they're constructing the same view of a father, regardless of race, that in a lot of what we're going to be talking about tonight is actually projected onto whites generally. It's really important to understand the continuities there, that what is forged as a weapon within one realm is used as a weapon within pretty much any realm of life. Mm -hmm. This has infected virtually every educational sphere right yep. now that yep. isn't otherwise guarded by the Holy Spirit in some way. So David, uh, like you, you've actually been teaching on this a little bit um, in your vocation. Yeah, it comes, it comes uh, to the fore here in Minnesota. Minnesota State House of Representatives is trying to pass legislation that will implement ethnic studies as a part of the core curricular requirements, not just for public schools, but for all schools. So it's, I mean, it's particularly egregious that they want you to teach tribally approved curricula <laughs> here mm -hmm. in Minnesota. Um, and so, and I think that one of the things that's so helpful, what you just described, Adam, is to see that that is, this is not something novel, but this has right. been a long time in the making. And yeah. when it is seen as novel or just as like, Oh yeah, social studies are nice, and knowing what other people think is nice, we miss that we miss the boat entirely, and you have yeah. to get to the root of it. And, and it's it's virtually secular orthodoxy now, right? Oh yeah, uh, and and so the people who have been indoctrinated into this are not thinking clearly. You have to be transformed by the renewing of your mind, and you're looking at something that radically pollutes the human mind. This kind of propaganda, this kind of theory. So, Zelwyn, how how is this kind of thing up in your part of North Dakota? Well, I mean, it's it's affecting everywhere. I mean, you can't get away from this kind of language. You know, the the, the terminology that gets thrown around in the news, or you see language of like deconstruction and that sort of thing. I mean, this this thing is happening everywhere, 
And the fact that it is becoming so much more prominent, it, I mean, there's really no place that's safe from it. Uh, one example that I wanted to use just to show you not only how long this has been going on, but also how great the reach it has. I remember when I was still an undergraduate uh, here in North Dakota, actually. It was the and- Dakota Territory at the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And encountering theory in its various forms, even in literature classes. And this kind of deconstructive approach to things and kind of tearing down so you can rebuild it into something else. I mean, this was something that was happening in rural, you know, western North Dakota. So this isn't something that's just happening out there in the cities or that's just happening around, you know, the big metropolis areas. This is, like you say, becoming the secular orthodoxy. We would do well to pay attention to it. I think that's why we've gathered this evening to discuss it at all, right? Yeah. You're seeing it come out in mainstream Christian publications. Even years ago, as I attended a Christian college, we still had the same kind of educational underpinnings that you would at a state school, as far as that stuff goes. It's creeping in. And it even creeped in uh, in some of like the Bible classes and the religion classes, so even at that point. And now it's it's come to be accepted, and accepted even within our synod by many. And so uh, that is something that needs to be corrected. Is Christianity compatible with critical theory? No. <laughs> there we go. Okay. It's, don't everybody jump in at once. Um, yeah. Yeah. Ultimately it cannot be because at its foundation, it wants to tear down everything that God has built and established. Well, and especially because at its foundation, it draws into question everything. I mean, that's the critical part of critical theory. It is critical of everything because it, it thinks entirely in terms of tearing down, in terms of destruction. Yeah. And so for the, the Christian to try to appropriate this is really to take on you know a, a foreign philosophy one that is ultimately destructive of the gospel. I mean, I, I, I don't know how else to put it, really. <laughs> sure, sure. It, it seems like there... It, it, it could be that critical theory finds a surprisingly ready bedfellow in a lot of Christianity with a low anthropology that we have in Christianity. So, I mean, I mean, misguided in understanding a low anthropology so that, you know, we want to think a little of ourselves all the time and to the point of apologizing for absolutely everything that, you know, anyone has ever done <laughs> in our heritage, right? Well, you know, it's interesting. Um, cultural identity is very important for humans. And, th- and this is really what critical theory wants to destroy. And it's been largely successful at destroying true cultural identity in many, in many cases in the, in the West, right? What is a true Brit, for example, right? Or even what is a true American? And so as, as they have destroyed that identity, it's interesting. People still want that. And so I think this is why all these fandoms and everything else or all these little like niche things that teenagers get into the goths and the, and the nerd culture and that sort of thing that is that has sort of filled the vacuum and it's almost like filling up with junk food though like humans innately want their cultural identity it's been robbed from them so they fill that up with all these other what do you want to say artificial communities so that whatever the, these marxists want to destroy at least for now there's still some element of humanity deep down in men and so we need to build that because Cultural identity is intrinsic to human existence, and it always has been. And God, frankly, has built it that way, has designed it that way. And as Adam mentioned, it first and foremost begins uh, in the nuclear family, which is what they really want to destroy. 
but the culture is the broader extension of that family. Right. And, and I, I think that inside that critique of the nuclear family is something that you see inside the discussion of the fundamental evil of men or the fundamental evil of whites, which is, which is a rejection of nature per se. And when nature is eviscerated, when there is no particular nature to the family or when the nature, it's sort of a Flacian error regarding whites because whites are entirely bad. Right. When that is asserted, the gospel cannot exist because the gospel sits on top of, in Romans 1, Romans 1 lies as the foundation of the turn that Paul's going to make in Romans 3 toward an announcement of the righteousness of God being revealed apart from the evils of a human nature because of which we are accountable. If we had no nature then we would not be accountable. And that is precisely what you see in any given situation of the victim group, the protected class within whatever the dynamic is, sexual, racial, whatever. The victim group is without sin. So even when they do something obviously wrong, okay, women initiating the vast majority of divorces in America, murder rate among American blacks, that is to be blamed on the intrinsically sinful power group, the disfavored group, rather than on the person committing the wrong. So the proclamation of repentance becomes useless for the victim group because all they need is recognition. And you can't proclaim repentance to people who are incorrigibly evil, obviously. Right. And and the assumption here, too, is that it's not so much the individual that is at fault. In fact, this is something that you find happening again and again and again with critical theory. Even if the individual, let's say white, is not actively doing something, yet they are still guilty by virtue of a system which uh, these, these, this theory says favors that, you know, their, their group. Right. So that's why, you know, that's why there's always this language of tearing down this language of, of bring, you know, trying to bring it all down so as to rebuild into right. what they consider to be a more just society, which is why, you know, there's it doesn't matter what you personally have done because the system favors you in some way. Therefore, you are part of this disfavored group, as you said, Adam. Right. And, and I, I think, I mean, to tie it together with what we started talking about with the conquistadors, one way you can tell that there is a basic unseriousness in the, the supposed advocates of protected classes, I mean, one way, there are plenty of others, is that no one ever talks about our systemic form of child sacrifice, right? That simply is not a part of the discussion about any form of injustice in the United States. And in fact, along with critical theory, generally will come legislatively, politically, and in some cases, ecclesiastically, an advocacy of various forms of the sexualization of children, especially through the introduction of drag queens and notions of gender fluidity in elementary education. So you can tell, you can tell not from the words about justice and reconciliation, but from the actions, right? Judge people the way Jesus teaches you to. You can tell from their actions 
that when there is someone objectively by nature vulnerable, a child, they don't care. They really, truly don't care. Right. They're naturally exploitative. That's what they do. In short, it's predatory behavior. Right. In the, in the purest sense of the word. And Christians need to get a grip on this, and we need to quit being so schizophrenic in the way that we that we talk about it. And we want to talk about like both sides of our mouth, and many are too afraid to stand up for their own culture, their own people. They would they would sooner throw the church under the bus because this happens this way, right? Well, now the church is sometimes just a euphemism for white for a lot of people. Right. Yep. And and so then the church is now intrinsically evil or intrinsically biased or racist or what or whatever, you know, term you want to use. You know, it's interesting because we're supposed to say get rid of the concept of race and you hear a lot of Christians say that then on the other side they'll their whole defense against abortion is that it overwhelmingly affects the black community. Right. Well, wh- well which is it? Which is it, guys? <laughs> <laughs> is it not real or is it <laughs> or or right. is it you right. know, you know, right. so we we need to get a grip on this and need to stop being so timid and afraid to contend for what is ours and to stop pretending as if uh, we're going to be able to negotiate our way, our way out of this or to or to you're going to have to appear judgmental. You're going to have to read the signs. OK, you're going to have to draw a line in the sand somewhere lest you be overtaken and it will happen. And if they don't overtake you, they're going to get your children if you're not careful. And that's even worse. So speak as if what the Bible says is true and as if you can perceive reality as a Christian and stop denying what is happening and stop denying the natural order of things too. We have to understand that to attack natural order to is is to deny God's hand in creation and to say that man has a better way of doing things. This is, you know, basically original sin all over again is what we're dealing with here. And and so I don't know, critical theory is almost like a new tower of of Babel in a way. Well, one thing that I do want to emphasize and we'll probably need to talk more about in the next segment is that the primary weapon of critical theory is language and the control of language, the control mm-hmm. of thought yeah. and, mm-hmm. you know, using yeah. right. language as a way of, you know, trying to get you to think a certain way, you know, you can't say that, you know, that's not correct. Or, you know, don't be bigoted if you say this or something like that. And it is by that use of language that uh, we find the greatest threat to, I mean, to, to our way of thinking, you know, to, to the church. So we need as Christians to be much more intentional about the words which we use and to not give into the language games of critical theory. Right. Uh, guys, we're going to the first break. Any, any comments before we do? All right. They're saving it for next round. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly Spoken after this. All Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Visit our website, wordfitlyspoken.org. There you'll find new articles each week on the Bible and other topics. You can also join us on Facebook at WordFitlyPosting. That's WordFitlyPosting with a P to discuss anything you've read or heard. Thank you for listening. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly Spoken. 
Welcome back, everyone. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken, Willie Grill, Zelwyn Heidi, Adam Kuntz, and David Bukes talking about critical theory. Well, I think we got a pretty good introduction in the first segment. Now we're going to talk a little bit about some of the accusations that critical theory or critical theorists rather uh, lob toward their opponents. Adam? Yeah. Yeah, and this ties really well into what Zelwyn said just before the break about the power of language, because these things do not work within educational institutions or churches, generally by brute force, like COVID measures. They work through essentially mind control, and especially presumptive accusations and unrelieved burdens of guilt. So the phrase white guilt, for instance, relies on the idea that even if your ancestors could not possibly because they weren't even around or like the absolute vast majority of Americans in North and South were not wealthy enough to own a single slave, you are responsible solely for slavery, despite its historical prevalence throughout the world and the fact that a vastly larger number of slaves were taken to the Arab lands and castrated or to South America, the North America. None of that matters. And so I think one of the first things to think about is the concept of white guilt, which is built upon a kind of historical, I mean, if it were a legal, if this were a legal case, it would be called a libel, a damning accusation, a slanderous accusation upon an entire group about something which never requires itself to provide any proof. That is that you are personally responsible or that the, you know, 80% of a given black Americans ancestors who are black and not white, maybe those 20% white ancestors, you know, I guess you get a pass for that or something. But the concept of reparations, for instance, which our friends at Lutheran Forum have supported, Reparations are built on a concept of collective racial guilt. And if you go back and you look and you say, well, my ancestors weren't here, or my ancestors didn't own slaves, or in the case of Willie or I, certain of our ancestors probably died on one or both sides of the Civil War, you know, I'm not sure if I'm supposed to be paying anybody or, you know. So what's happening here is you get a very vague but constantly repeated accusation. And people end up believing that. You don't have to spell it out or explain yourself or prove anything. You just repeat the accusation and then people believe it. And since it's repeated in school and on their phones and kind of everywhere they look, most of them believe it. Yeah, it's the new mythology. It's the standard meta narrative now. Right. Well, this is this is why you see it happening so often, especially in the media and even in like children's programs Mm -hmm. where these things are coming up more and more. Because, again, this kind of ill-defined but everywhere kind of accusation that if you hear it enough times, well, maybe you'll just kind of you'll stop you'll stop thinking about it critically. Right. Yep. (laughs) Yep. You could see something of how of how disingenuous it is too, in that the very like systems of oppression that are sought to be overturned are implemented by this strategy, right? There, I mean, it's new kinds of internalization of you know dominance versus being oppressed, and it's just a it's just reversing the roles altogether. If if that actually is the goal, no, absolutely, because I mean that that is the stated goal in many cases to to empower those who who are perceived as being powerless 
you know, through the, the use of language, through, you know, if you control the, the way people speak, you control the way they think. And that will give these groups, which were historically disenfranchised or whatever language they use, uh, that will give them more power. Yeah, it's but, absolutely about overturning and reversing. It things. almost always begins with language, with labels of some kind. I yep. mean, this, the, the Biden's recent um, executive order, you can't say Wuhan virus, you know, in his administration. <laughs> I mean, it's you know right. patently absurd, and right. yet, uh, and yet, it is arguably quite successful, uh, being able to do that. And uh, once once you redefine this, it's very hard to. It's it's really like meeting someone in a cult, a Christian cult, who uses the same vocabulary sometimes as uh, Orthodox Christians, but with an entirely different meaning. It's very hard to undo that kind of thing. Right. Especially, and I and I think David David mentioned this a little bit earlier in hijacking a sense of guilt that is native to Christianity, but then the language will often employ Christian terms even when the speaker is not Christian, saying talking about America's original sin or the stain of white supremacy, whatever that means in a context in which I get points docked on a job application for being white. None of those things are ever really proved, but I think they have particular purchase in the church because a lot of us have been taught that being Christian means being nice and never refuting anything. I mean, I, part of the difficulty that the church has in dealing with this and part of the reason that even a church is the LC, the LCMS is like 98% white, maybe. Right. Just slightly less white than the ELCA. Right. <laughs> right. Just slightly. Right. Even in a church that has not a lot of internal reason to be completely, you know, roiled up and divided against itself in this matter. The reason is that I think we think that being a Christian means never using the word of God to rebuke falsehood. Mm -hmm. But falsehood is cancerous and destructive. And it's especially cancerous and destructive when it doesn't even stop to explain itself because the language that you always get in both the secular press and then in Lutherans for Racial Justice, Lutheran Forum, prominent left-wing posters who are still on the LCMS roster, the language you always get is highly emotional. Mm -hmm. And it's never going to stop and say, you know, hey, take a calm analytical look at who's responsible for black fatherlessness. They never talk about collective guilt for anyone except whites. And when they do, they speak in extremely emotional terms. So your only option is either to believe or to write them off. Right, right. And you, yeah, you can't, when, when everything's emotionally charged like that, they're not looking for a discussion. No. And they'll actually say that though. Because right. because you're white, which means it's your turn to listen right. and only listen. Uh, you don't get to speak anymore. And it's a dangerous place for the church to find herself. And especially as church bodies will flirt with racial quotas or say something like, well, we need to have X number of, we need to empower women more to do this. So we need to put right. them in offices or we need to hire more non-white people in clergy positions or church right. positions or whatever. Well, right. th there's a big danger there in, when you believe in the biblical doctrine of election and when you believe that it's the Holy Spirit, in theory, right, who who divinely calls. so That is the know, theory. You got right? it, man. <laughs> you know, so, so again, we, we've got that double speak again, right? 
to where we say, oh, it's all the work of the Holy Spirit, but now let's artificially do something here. And and so it just it just doesn't play uh, because it's fundamentally incompatible with the biblical witness. And you know, am I, you know, to what to what degree are you responsible for another person's sins, right? Unless you directly cause someone to stumble, if you become that stumbling block, then yes, you actually do share the guilt. And so when you're teaching your flock to hate, let's say white people. You're actually the one incurring guilt by causing other people to sin. You don't share the guilt of your distant ancestors in that way. No. Um, the guilt we share is from our federal head, Adam. Right. But it doesn't really extend, you know, in the same way that the critical, that these Marxists want us to believe. Right. But it is fomenting hatred in the church. And typically it's hatred against whites. And And to narrow down a little bit more, it's actual... You know, the real hatred is reserved for Bible-believing white people. Correct, right? Because if you're not Bible-believing, you you can kind of enter this caste system as the untouchable class, but at least you have a place, right? And your place is silently, you know, Venmoing reparations to somebody, but at least you have a place. Yeah. And, and I don't think that we can really, like, understate how little they feel for the church of Christ, the people who are into these things. And I believe that a lot of the Christians who are into it have been indoctrinated into it, have have had their minds all twisted up by this and don't actually think about what they're doing because it's like anything when they're having these emotional posts and things like that, they are simply caught up in the winds of popular theory. That's all it is. That's all it is. It's not an alpha move at all. It's just merely going with the flow. Not a good place to be when this river's flowing straight down into hell, you know. I, I think your point about culpability, Willie, is really important. It, it's so often underappreciated how susceptible people are, the laity are, to the things that they hear all around them all the time. And if, you know, it's, it's I mean, it's a dire uh, depiction of the state of things if the clergy are not willing to rebuke sin. If the clergy aren't willing to rebuke sin or to speak out against things, then of course, of course the lady can't, they can't, they have nobody to follow, no example to follow. Right. So the racial aspect that we're talking about is the really heated one. That's the one people are really afraid to talk about. But the earlier frontier on this was really just a a few years ago was uh, homosexuality, right? With Mm -hmm. same-sex marriage. And we've seen that, that the slippery slope fallacy uh, proved to be uh, nothing but it actually Rick, was Rick was Santorum at- did nothing wrong. I just want to go <laughs> on the record. Yeah. Right. But, yeah. and, and we were, we were at the time willing to speak up for the sanctity of marriage, but now quickly it has turned into tolerate for the sake of the gospel. Not, not officially, but implicitly in, in a lot of cases, uh, you know, we want to be friends with, with this group. So how can we be friends with them if we rebuke them? Right. Mm-hmm. We can't. You know, very quickly, uh, the church will find itself de facto endorsing some of these things, especially if we only argue along the lines of personal religious liberty or something like that. That is not enough. And these people are not concerned about your liberty or especially not your freedom in Christ. Okay, so we have to preserve the church and the way that we preserve the church is by standing firm on what the church teaches. But, you know, we've we've the goalpost has been 
you know, move from homosexuality now to race, which we're much less comfortable talking about. Right. Um, but the two are still related marriage, race, homosexuality, this compartmentalization of things. We really become unwilling to fight when we get any real pushback from the world when we feel like we're alone, right? And a lot of people, a lot of people out there are are hearing this stuff and saying, "Well, I don't like it, but if I say anything, right, then I'm going to get utterly destroyed, right?" And we need to be supportive of them as they seek to stand firm. Not not supportive of their silence. That's not what I mean. I mean we need to collectivize. Now I'm borrowing Marxist terms, but we need to unite <laughs> um, and stand firm on this as yeah. uh, as Christians. Well, especially because, if nothing else, the critical theorists are going to be relentless in their assault. Absolutely relentless. They're not going to give you quarter. They're not going to say, oh, let's have a nice little discussion about this. Their their goal is victory. They are more (laughs) dangerous. I hear this all the time. Well, what about right-wing crazy theories? Where is this happening in our churches? That it's leading people away. I Listen, I don't believe in a vast right-wing conspiracy, because if there was one, I'm certain I would be a part of it. <laughs> the, it it's, just, it's just not our... It's not what is pulling people away at this point, you know? If it was even possible for it to do that. I, I'm sorry that the one wing that wants to believe in the Bible and, and, and live it, you know, is uh, that's usually what some people mean by right wing, right? Right. But, or, or, or conspiracy yeah. theories or whatever, right. you know, all right. things that we endorse. But I, I have never encountered, you know, a proverbial LCMS congregational elder who says, you know, hey, um, you know, this really sad thing happened. My daughter went to college and she started wearing skirts and talking about how the elites are all pedophiles and now she doesn't go to church anymore. That right. doesn't, that's not real. There you know, is a you know, very I clear her, enemy. I gave her like a, a, a field hockey buzz cut so that she could perform better and she came home with her with wearing a head covering or something. Right, exactly. It doesn't, it doesn't happen. And that's why this is an after dark episode. That's right. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, I mean, you know, what what is really uh, taking your kids away from you, or your spouse, or whatever? You know, this is this is a real a real issue that we have to that we have to deal with. And, and thanks be to God, there are faithful pastors out there and faithful laymen who are contending against this. But as this becomes the new orthodoxy, it's going to be harder and harder for individuals to stand against it. And I do believe that we're already seeing Christians being marginalized in society. Yeah, no question. And I, I, the thing that, the thing about which I am most, let's say, apprehensive for the future is that when Missouri Synod Lutherans do engage politics openly, they generally, the last time this happened was in the 60s and 70s. And at that time, certain elites within our synod wanted to ride the crest of you know, nascent 60s liberalism. Mm -hmm. And it was at the time claimed that nothing was changing theologically, even though in practice, we were doing things politically that we had never done before. And claiming that if you didn't have this or that position on the Civil Rights Act, or the war in Vietnam, you weren't really a Christian, or you didn't really understand the gospel. So the, the thing to notice here is that I think the LCMS particularly has a lot of difficulty speaking its mind when its mind, the mind of Christ, is contrary to the culture. But when it aligns with the culture, that's indicative of much deeper theological change. 
which which is probably because it's the LCMS, probably people are not being upfront about what they disagree with besides mm-hmm. the stuff that they are, you know, where they are aligning themselves with popular opinion currently. Well, what you're starting to see again, too, is a rise of pastors endorsing so-called Lutheran quietism. And and these things are seen as too politically charged to talk about, and they would say that that's not the place of the right. church, but you cannot separate the two. You, you, It's not like we're talking about uh, rezoning from residential to commercial or something like that. Or, you know, <laughs> right, this yeah. is, right. this is a fundamental attack on truth and, and you can't just lie or pretend that it doesn't matter. Well, and especially because even if you try to be quiet about it, even if you try to just ignore it, it's not going to ignore you. Right. There's, there's no getting away from this. Not, not, not even in the church, the quotas right. will be discussed. The accusations will be leveled. You, you had an example with the closing of Concordia Selma. No one ever mentioned the graduation rates. No one ever mentioned all of the other insane academic problems going on there. It was just, why didn't you white people do more to keep it open? You know, so there will there will always be fundamental accusation combined with suppression of inconvenient truths. And this will not stop unless it is rebuked. Right. And even then, it might still not stop, but right. you will you will be doing the right thing and the thing that right. you're called to do, and that's a that's a prize in and of itself. <laughs> you know, we, for all of our talk about a clean conscience, if you don't speak the truth, you won't have one. <laughs> yeah, and, um, and 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 how are the faithful to know what the right thing is if the men whom God has chosen to speak the word of God to them? don't guide them into the knowledge of like if if you don't clearly say what is right and what is wrong why should you expect someone who is busy during the week providing for his family in some other vocation to know, to have figured out more than you have about these salient cultural changes which are infecting his children's minds through their cartoon network programming let alone you know if they're still going to public school Right. It's funny, you know, they're putting warning labels on old cartoons or even outright banning certain Looney Tunes and things like that. Right. While promoting just absolute Satanism in new stuff that they put out. And nobody bats an eye at that. Um, right. It, you know, a lot of critical theory is is misdirection. It's magic in that way. That it it it, it, it takes your eyes away from what you really need to be looking at and examining. It's a, it's a sleight of hand thing. It's trickery. And uh, people are being hoodwinked by the thousands, if not millions right now. And we have to pull back the curtain and show them how the trick is done. If you if you burst the illusion, then perhaps people can see what's really going on, what the machinations are. Right. And then we can begin the work of uh, rebuilding. Well, if nothing else, too, I mean, think of Paul, for example. Can you imagine if Paul in Corinthians had kind of just kind of tiptoed around the issue going on with uh, the man, you know, having his his mother-in-law as, as a wife, if he said, you know, this is, this is what God is saying. you you can figure it out from here. I mean, can you imagine if he did that? I mean, but, but what does he do? He clearly rebukes it. He, he names it for what it is. And he says, this is wrong. And I'm not, and you need to quit this because this is detrimental, not only to that man, but also to you as the entire church. You are, you're killing your souls by tolerating this within your midst. 
Yeah, absolutely. All right, we're up to our next break. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly Spoken after this. But he said, Yea, rather blessed are they that hear the word of God and keep it. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. Hang tight. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly. Welcome back, everyone. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. We're talking critical theory in this special Word Fitly After Dark episode. So we've talked about how this, what do we want to say, worldview operates, and we've talked about the underpinnings of it, the origins of it. Well, now let's talk about how to contend against it. I think we've made the case on why. Uh, you know, you <laughs> you don't get to demonize every you know every white person or every person you disagree with and utterly destroy their lives, that should be enough to, um, you know, you don't get to be libelous. That's bad enough. But it's more than just simply libel. I mean, this is having drastic implications for everything. So how do we as Christians then contend against critical theory? I think uh, when, what Zelwin was saying at the end of the last segment is very helpful, uh, and, and Adam too, that clarity is such a valuable tool. I mean, it's invaluable. Speaking speaking plainly about things is really the the weapon that we have at our disposal. And I think that in some sense, critical theory thrives on on a lack of clarity. It thrives on ob- obscuring things. So you know, when Adam was describing who do I owe reparations to, you know, how how could I ever know that? Or or I hear white people talking about trying to be better anti-racists. And the way the reason they're talking about it is because they don't know how to do it. It's unclear just how, how exactly you accomplish that. Um, and that obscurity keeps people constantly guessing. You know, you don't know what part of you is going to be attacked next. You don't know what you're going to have to change in the next moment. And that can be combated very simply with, you know, I mean, reality and nature and God's word are plain. They're not obscure. And I mean, they are veiled to those who are perishing, but we have the Holy Spirit. And so we can speak plainly about these things with confidence. And there's nothing that can, nothing that can combat that, nothing that can push back against it because it's, I mean, it's the words of Jesus himself. Yeah, very good. Uh, Zellin? This has been word fitly spoken. No, <laughs> right, right. <laughs> no I mean, I, I think that's, that's very well put, David, because really to, to bring that kind of clarity is going to be our ultimate weapon. And what is more clear than the word of God? I mean, I'm, I'm just thinking back with my own experiences, like in undergraduate, and how theory would take something that seemed to be so plain, like you're reading a play of Shakespeare or something like that, and then to just twist it around into making it unclear and muddled so that you could prove some obscure, non-existent point. And that's really how this thrives, like you say, is that it thrives on this 
on confusing things. It thrives on muddling things because in that confusion is where it gets its power. So if we want to speak against it very clearly, we just need to speak clearly through the word of God. And so just knowing what the word says and being honest about what the word says and forthright about it is going to be our, our greatest weapon in the fight. I, I think one of the best biblical resources for looking at questions of race, although that category, which is a kind of super category above the more common biblical discussion of ethnicity, would be anywhere that Paul is talking about being Jewish. Because in those places, whether in Acts or in Romans or Philippians or wherever, you can see someone who simultaneously accepts his ethnicity as good and wholesome, while also aware of the particular failings of his people. And those accusations are not vague. They have to do with the same sorts of things Stephen is preaching against in Acts 7. You rejected the Messiah. You turned against the light. You resisted the Holy Spirit. And those, those accusations do not, however, lead Paul to a hatred of his own people. He wishes that in Romans, that he could be cut off from Christ, damned, if that would mean the salvation of his own people group. And I see this constantly among white Christians in the United States, that they have no knowledge of nor desire for the salvation of their own racial group, or even underneath that, let's say their ethnic group, and as much as they have a conception of that, they don't worry about opioids or the increasing suicide rate among whites or anything like that. They don't care about anything like that. They're, they're happy to you know, promote immigration and racial reconciliation. This is kind of Russell Moore boilerplate and neglect their own people. And it doesn't mean that the rest of the world can just, you know, be forgotten. Paul is fervent. He is the apostle to the Gentiles, but that does not prevent him from loving and desiring the salvation also of his own people. Yeah, very good. Adam just stole all my talking points too. So now I've got nothing to add. Um, no, yeah, I, I mean, absolutely. Um, and, and you shouldn't feel ashamed of that. Right. You know, and Lutherans used to be better about this. Like they don't, they don't want to be just considered exclusively German. Apologies to the Scandinavian Lutherans listening, but, um, or on but, the podcast, but go or on. on the, right. Um, <laughs> but, little, but, little, little known fact is that ethnic rivalry is hottest <laughs> in the United States on this podcast. So, <laughs> so yeah. but what's funny is, okay, you know, oh, well, we shouldn't be so German. But then watch their eyes glow when they talk about the sauerkraut supper sh coming up, you know. And then the next yeah. thing you know, they're in Lederhosen and wearing a pickle hob. Uh, that's and and I've made we've we've you know ribbed about that on the show before too. But those things aren't necessarily bad. And that's not to say that the church is exclusively German or anything like that. It's just to say that you share in this tradition and you're part of this heritage. And right. hey. You're going to eat this. You're going to believe certain things. You're going to live a certain way. Right. And thankfully, you're you're in a culture that has been Christianized, or at least was Christianized to a point. And so you actually are an inheritor of good things and wholesome things. And it's okay to celebrate that. Right. Unless you're Irish. <laughs> <laughs> and Willie Can't shows confirm. his true colors. But. Yeah, right. Exactly. Well, I mean, and, and those things, those things are not just like mere accidents of history. But in fact, 
in many, many cases, the very means by which God has preserved his church, you know, these, right. these apparent, yeah. you know, apparent vagaries of culture, you know, they're just like, that's what God used. And so we should celebrate it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You can't say these things are accidental or even incidental. They're part of God's providence. And, you know, when we say God is still working in the universe, we actually mean it. And so, yeah, it's fine. And, but we're fine to let, you know, other people uh, do their own thing or bring their own things in, even if it's problematic. Because, And this is a particular problem the church has. If a foreign group, if we want to use that word, wants to bring in something that's not conducive to good worship, for example, or is even false doctrine, we kind of turned a blind eye to that for the sake yeah. of tolerance in many yep. cases. Yep. Ma- you know, many such cases. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I, I think that we, we fail to hold, we, we do show partiality to men by holding white candidates for the ministry to a different standard very often than people for whom, you know, English is their second language and they came to America later in life or something. We don't, we don't ask them all the same questions very often and then wind up with various kinds of theological dysfunction. And that actually becomes, quote unquote, racist in and of itself. There's a kind of a racism of low expectations. Yeah, no question. Yeah. yeah. And if you can imagine, you know, Paul doing that with a Gentile saying, well, you're a Gentile. So, you know, you didn't go to a Concordia and you haven't been inundated with this religion since youth. So you couldn't possibly be expected to X, Y and Z. That's fine. Come on in. You know, Paul does not fetishize Gentiles simply because they're not him. Mm-hmm. He doesn't think mm-hmm. everything about them is amazing. For instance, their their propensity for sexual immorality. <laughs> right. <laughs> Rampant idolatry. Right. General paganism. Right. All things not okay. I, I think I think this is is making some you know good practical points when we're dealing with with these issues because. We really just do need to be more forthright. And so being forthright even about some of these issues within the church would seem at first blush to be not all that problematic. I mean, it shows how how deeply these these ideas can encroach upon us even before we realize it. Yeah. And I, I think I think the reason it's so difficult in the, in this specific case is because and, you know, if our friends from assorted things I've mentioned over the past, you know, hour are listening, they will think of us and we will be called racist. And the problem there is that that word is so powerful that when Jeffrey Dahmer was on trial for, you know, murdering and eating assorted human beings, he wanted to make it clear to the families of his victims that he wasn't racist. You know, so <laughs> so he did not deny murder or cannibalism. He denied racism. That's the power of that accusation. And so when you're talking about something which can be labeled racist by people interested in libel, slander, and falsehood, then of course people are going to be timid and they're going to be worried. But we have not received a spirit of timidity, right? We have a spirit of power. And so we can speak, and Paul talks this way when he talks about his preaching, we speak with you know, boldness, but the word is specifically the word for, I'm a citizen of this city, I will speak freely in public, you know, as an Athenian would in in Athens. And so within the church, if whites cannot speak freely, 
then we recog- then we're basically saying that there is a gospel which allows freedom and freedom of discussion for non-whites, but whites are not permitted the same freedom in Christ to speak concerning the word of God. If they call you racist, so what? Right. Yeah. <laughs> you just you just kind of have to like you say recognize that if we are speaking the truth that comes from the clear word of God, then it doesn't matter what accusations they throw at you. Speak the truth and right. speak it clearly. Right. And and leave it at that. Yeah, no, I mean I mean this is the, you know, this is the issue. And and why will they so quickly demonize other pastors for example? Or, or people within the church so quickly. Nobody ever stops to ask that question. Yeah. For all of our throwing the Eighth Commandment around, it apparently does not apply to certain other individuals and groups. And, uh, you know, all, all we hear about is, you know, um, you know, the, the, you know, it's like they don't even understand how long some people have even been in the country, right? So they think that they think we all came over at Ellis Island or something and they want to lump us into that or, or whatever. It's, it's it's all very strange. Yeah. yeah, I was I was accused of opposing immigration by the outgoing president of Concordia in New York because uh simply because they they just had a sanitation check at Ellis Island. You know, and that was both that was both false and also offensive since my ancestors were all here before there was a country. You know, but but he didn't care before he said that in public. He just said it. And if we allow people to just say things that are obviously false and offensive in the church, we shouldn't be surprised when lots of other things go by the wayside that are also true, because we have permitted falsehood to dominate over the truth. I can't help but notice the not so subtle uh, strike against my Scandinavian and late coming German heritage there, but go on. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, I mean, like, I feel the worst for you guys when, you know, we talk about reparations because it's like you literally, are they like, you, you, you had nothing, no, no nothing. skin in that game. Yes, no, yes, at all. You were still, you were still like, you know, speaking whatever, you know, it is that you speak, you know, at right. the time when eating we were whatever, shooting each other. Yeah. Eating whatever but, congealed but birds like wrapped in a drum that you eat over there or whatever. Right, right, whatever. Yeah. yeah. Whatever is cheap. Uh, speaking my plat deutsch because you know north german forever but yeah i mean it it just it just doesn't even make any sense but that's not the point and it's it's also i mean like I, i kind of alluded to this earlier but let me kind of spell it out a little bit more because this will lead into something that we're going to be working on shortly which is looking at the career of herman otten because Herman Otten's contention about the LCMS was, I think, fundamentally correct, which was that the battle for the Bible was a symptom of a much larger, m- far more enormous cultural danger, right? Like the modern ELCA led by a vanguard from, you know, coming out of the LCMS is not what it is with its transgender baptisms and its racial quotas and its destruction of the gospel of Christ, simply because some seminary professor somewhere said, you know, I I don't know if, you know, Jonah was really swallowed by a fish. That's part of it. But that's, that's kind of a symptom of a much larger attachment to our degenerate culture and power within it. 
And mm-hmm. so if you're going to permit one kind of falsehood, denial of scripture, accusation that all whites are incorrigibly evil or uniquely historically responsible for some evil that no one else is, et cetera, you're going to, when you permit one falsehood, you permit them all because it's 11. So you don't need a whole lot in order to destroy everything. Yeah. Well said. And we're looking forward to that Uncle Herman episode too. Uh, It's going to be a fun (laughs) one. I concur. Sounds great. (laughs) I mean, it's, it, I mean, we're making a lot of good points, I think, and it's a lot of good things to, to work with. I'm, I'm just trying to think, you know, it to really kind of sum it all up, and maybe that's something we need to do here in the last few minutes, just to to speak clearly, to not be attached to, you know, the, the degeneracy of the culture, to, you know, to be in the Word of God, I think is really our, our best way out of these things, because if we're not speaking through the Word and in the Word, we're not going to have any weapons. I mean, the, I mean, the the word is our our weapon for the right hand and for the left, and we need the word if we are going to speak at all. So we don't want to even attach ourselves to some secular political movement in the hopes that that will somehow slow this train down, because we've seen already how that's not working. In fact, right. within those movements, there they too are being co opted by this. But we need to be unapologetically and unabashedly in the word of God and speaking from the word of God and let them say what they want. That is how we are going to, you know, keep our consciences clear and to, you know, speak the truth. And even no matter what the cost comes of that, at least we will have said what God would have us say. And I think that goes, I think that goes hand in hand with um, encouraging people to a deeper level of engagement with these issues. It's it's so easy to take pot shots at things or to deal with you know surface symptoms, but the cure for uh, that you know the allure of going along with culture or buying into you know the conveniences of critical theory, the cure for that is deeper thought. You know, looking looking at it through you know properly informed and thoroughgoing lenses. And I think that that is, I mean, that's, that's hard work. And that's, that's a good reason for us to be talking about this and encouraging one another and, and any listeners. I mean, it's hard work, but it is, it's the front on which we're fighting right now, I think, most of all. And if I may, even critical theorists uh, need to hear the word of God. And the word of God is powerful, and it needs to be preached in its fullness, uh, that is in truth, and that people will be converted by it, that the Lord will continue to work through that. And so it is a preaching and teaching mission that we are on, mm-hmm. uh, primarily to our flocks so that they would be protected from ravening wolves. But it's also an, uh, an evangelistic mission as well, to preach the gospel to those who perhaps have forgotten it or to preach the gospel to those who haven't heard it. Mm-hmm. And when a church's mission becomes this kind of social work exclusively, as you see with a lot of critical theory, the gospel is is obscured at best and most likely lost. And so preach the word. Don't be afraid of it. Study the word. Know the word. Teach it. Take charge of your family's education in all spheres and um, and live according to that word and stand on every single word of it. It is a powerful sword that you have uh, in each and every home out there. And so if you will stand upon that, and if pastors will go back to the book and preach that book, then you will see God work. 
I do believe that God can convert nations. And maybe America's too far gone, I don't know. I think parts of it have been given over to judgment. But I do believe that God can and does convert not only individuals, but enough individuals to make up a nation. And we should be praying for that too. That God's will be done, but also that God uh, that God would save us. And it's only God who can do it. And God works powerfully and his word is powerful and he works through it. So keep it in your hearts, keep it in your homes, keep it ever in your minds. Gentlemen, any final words as we adjourn for this After Dark episode? If nothing else, imitate Paul uh, on Mars Hill when he preaches the resurrection to the pagans who were there. He is unapologetic about what he has to say. And even if the world scoffs at you because of it, there will be some who will hear. And that's what we need to really preach as we go forward with this. Well, very good. Well, gentlemen, thank you all so much. It's a pleasure as always. Thank you. Yep, thank you. This has been a Word Fitly Spoken. If you like what you heard and want to know more, check us out at wordfitlyspoken.org, facebook.com slash wordfitly, or Twitter at wordfitly. I'm Willie Grills, here with Zell and Heidi Adam Coons and David Bukes. God love you, and God bless.